Let me begin by uh, saying what a delight it is to be here with you folks again. Uh, in many ways, uh, Trinity Baptist Church has become like my, a second home to me, and it's always a delight to see uh, the folks here from the church and to see all my, my brothers uh, in the work of the gospel. And what a privilege it is for me to be able to, to be here and to have the opportunity to try to be a help and a blessing uh, to each of you as we consider God's word together. So we're going to turn back to 1 Timothy, uh, where the reading was taken from, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I will be reading verses 3 through verse 7. If you'd like to follow with me as I read. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia... Remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. And before we pray, I did want to mention one thing I forgot to mention. I've been coming to the conference for years, and every year I come, uh, people say, you should bring your wife. And I say, I need to bring my wife next year. And that was in 1997. It was the first time I came. And for the first time, I have my wife with me, Kelly. And so I'm very thankful to have Kelly with me. Hope you'll get to meet her. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your holy word. And as we stand here and as we sit before your word, we pray you would help us to approach your word reverently. We pray, Father, that you would help us to understand it accurately. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and impress powerfully upon our hearts the truths that are here, that we might be built up in our most holy faith, that we might be strengthened in our devotion to Christ and to the gospel. And we also remember those among us who remain outside of the kingdom. We plead, O oh Father, that you would have mercy upon them, and even this night you would open their eyes to the glory of Christ they might find him as the pearl of great price. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. When I was in seminary, uh, leading into my final year of study in seminary, there was a family uh, in my church invited me to live in their home. It was a wonderful Christian home uh, with a large family. One of their sons was in the college and career group that I taught in the church I was part of at the time. And they had a large home with plenty of space. So they invited me to live there for free uh, when I finished up, while I was finishing up my degree. In fact, I was living, living there when my wife Kelly and I met. Uh, the father was a veterinarian in Fort Worth, uh, Texas, and he seemed to be a very godly man. He's a very zealous and enthusiastic Christian. And we had wonderful times of fellowship with him and with his family. We, Kelly and I loved him very much. We loved that family very much. 
Uh, but not long after we got married and we moved to South Carolina, I'm in Florida now, but I pastored in South Carolina for about a little over 18 years. Uh, but when we moved to South Carolina, a number of very strange things happened. This man had a twin brother who claimed to have been converted out of a kind of a weird, some kind of weird Eastern religion or out of a kind of a cultic background. And this brother, who claimed now to be a, a Christian, he moved his family way up into the mountains of New Mexico uh, to live off the land and to keep uh, so-called separated from the world. And he began to promote strange doctrines and weird ideas and extreme charismatic teaching. I won't get into the, I won't get into the details of it all this evening. Well, after we moved to South Carolina, we found out that our friend, the dad of the family that I lived in, had gone to visit his brother in New Mexico. And well, while he was there, uh, he came under his brother's spell. We might put it that way, as it were. He made another trip later, and gradually he began to change his views and his beliefs. And to make a long story short, he eventually left his wife, his wonderful family. He had four beautiful kids. He moved up into the mountains with his brother, and later he became something of a homeless vagabond, traveling about here and there as some kind of self-professed prophet, until eventually he died some years later of hepatitis. It was shocking for us. Shocking for us, to say the least. And there have been other experiences like this, perhaps not so dramatic, in which men or women that we have known who at one time appeared to be faithful Christians have fallen away from the faith. Some of you who have been Christians long enough, uh, you've been Christians long enough that perhaps you can remember conversations like this. A shocked friend asked you, have you heard about Sally? She's left the church. And she says she's no longer a Christian. Or have you heard about Bob? He says he's changed his mind about the Bible. He no longer believes that it's the infallible Word of God, and he no longer believes that Christ is the only way to heaven. A way, perhaps, but not the way. And what was most disconcerting about that, uh, this situation, is that this person, perhaps, that you knew used to be, or at one time seemed to be, one of the most zealous Christians in the church. He used to be one of the leaders of the youth ministry, or she used to lead the devotions at the, the ladies' meetings, or perhaps he used to be your pastor, or was someone God actually used to bring you to Christ. But now they have turned away from the faith. And all kinds of questions come into your mind. Were they ever truly converted to begin with? Time will tell. If they continue in that way and never repent, they never were, but the verdict is still out, perhaps. But I just want to say to you, and I say all these things to say it's nothing new. We have examples of this in the Bible. Judas, Demas, one of Paul's trusted missionary companions, but sadly... Paul says of him later in 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. It's what we sometimes refer to, and the Bible sometimes describes, uh, by the word apostasy. Turning away from the faith that a person once professed to believe. But not only does this happen to individuals, it happens to churches. Sean Lucas in an article entitled Lessons from Church History, tells about what he discovered when he was doing research 
on the history of a particular church. Now, he happens to be a Presbyterian. So the examples given are Presbyterian churches. I don't want you to think I'm picking on Presbyterians here because the very same thing could be said of many Baptist churches that were once faithful, doctrinally sound, healthy congregations. But he writes this. He says, for example, I tried to find information about Point Breeze Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, where Harold Okenga ministered. Central Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga, where William Kozar pastored. United Presbyterian Church in Wheeling, West Virginia, where John Reed Miller served for a time. And Central Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, where R.E. Howe pastored. What did I find that these congregations have? What do these congregations have in common? They were all thriving, large, significant churches, pastored by conservative, talented men, and they no longer exist today. As late as the 1950s, they were all thriving congregations, but no longer. And the lesson he draws from this is this. It only takes one generation for a church to die. And I would add, or if not die and close its doors, it only takes one generation for a church to become largely apostate and no longer faithful to the gospel. Well, in the passage I've had us turn to this evening in 1 Timothy, Paul is addressing the problem of false teachers in the church at Ephesus. And so let me say something about the context. Paul is in Macedonia, and he's left Timothy behind in Ephesus to instruct God's people and to set things in order in the church. And the first thing Paul addresses in this letter is this problem of false teaching and false teachers. False teachers had, had arisen in the church at Ephesus. And there are indications in the letter that these false teachers may have been in the eldership of the church. You'll remember it's in this letter that he gives the qualifications to be an elder. And that he gives certain warnings about not putting people who are novices into the eldership. And he also speaks about those who sin, and two or three witnesses, are to be admonished before all. There's, so there are hints that perhaps these false teachers were actually in the eldership of the church in Ephesus itself. We can't be certain of that. And they were teaching what Paul calls at the end of verse 3 here, other doctrine. Doctrine other than sound doctrine other than sound apostolic teaching, novelties. New teachings threatening to draw people away from the truth of the gospel. And exactly what were these men teaching? Well, we aren't given a lot of details, but, but we are given some very interesting clues. Paul says in verse 4, "...charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, fables or myths. Myths and endless genealogies which cause disputes, or it can be translated which promote speculations. Later in this same epistle, chapter 6, verses 4 to 5, Paul describes these false teachers as obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. And he speaks in verse 20 of chapter 6 of profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Well, 
taking all of these references together, whatever the precise details were of what these false teachers were teaching, it's safe to say that it included an obsession with so-called hidden truths supposedly found in Jewish myths and genealogies, rewrites and embellishments of certain sections of the Old Testament history. And we know that there were, there were certain uh, literature that was, that was circulating around at that time in, in history. And it also involved religious and philosophical speculations. Speculations regarding things not contained or taught in Scripture. Philosophical speculations and claiming to have a special knowledge not found in the Bible. And then also, as we see here in verse 7, it involved a misuse and abuse of God's law. Paul says, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things they affirm. And I want to pause right here uh, for a few moments before we go any further. And I want you to think about this. One of the things driving this letter to Timothy is the terrible threat of apostasy in the church at Ephesus. Paul makes reference to this throughout this letter. And it wasn't until I was really studying this, I'd read this epistle many, many times, but that I, it struck me how often he refers to this in the first letter to Timothy. See, some were straying from the faith. Turning away from the truth. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. From which some, having strayed, have turned aside. Verse 19. He speaks of certain ones who, concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. He speaks in chapter 4, verse 1, of some who will depart from the faith. Chapter 5, verse 15. Some, he says, who have already turned aside after Satan. Chapter 6, verse 10, he speaks of some who have strayed from the faith, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And in the last verse of this epistle, he uses this language again, speaking of some who have strayed concerning the faith. This is the underlying driving concern of this letter. False teaching had become a tremendous threat to this church, and some have already fallen away. And this is amazing when you think about it. Think about it. This is a church that for almost three years had been instructed by the Apostle Paul himself. Acts chapter 19. And it had only been about four years, perhaps five years, since Paul had given his farewell address to the Ephesian elders. As one commentator has put it, commenting on this, the Ephesian church had drunk from the pure stream of apostolic teaching. There could be no better water than that. God's Word from a writer of God's Word. In today's terms, they did not drink merely from the tap, but from an apostolic fire hose for three years. They had even had the grandest ecclesiastical letter of the New Testament, the letter to the Ephesians, written personally to them. But within 48 to 60 months, or five years, of Paul's farewell address to their elders, apostasy had come to numbers of people in the congregation. It had already come to some. It was threatening others, and it was threatening the very life of the church. Now, brothers and sisters, if that can happen to the church at Ephesus, don't ever think it can't happen to our churches. It most certainly can't. 
It only takes one generation. In fact, the repeated record of church history shows us that any given church can depart from the faith in even less than one generation. It can happen to this church. It can happen to my church. It can happen to any of us here as individuals if we don't guard against it and keep our hearts close to Christ. And there are several lessons that I want to underscore right here before we go any further. Simple lessons. First of all, this is why anyone who has any real concern for his or her soul must seek by God's grace to be thoroughly grounded in the Scriptures. My friend, you have the responsibility to discern between what is true and what is false. But how are you going to be able to do that if you don't study your Bible? When someone claims, comes to you claiming to speak Bible truth, you have the responsibility to, to discern whether they really are or not. Whether what he speaks is really truth or just half truth or all out error. And that means you must be a diligent student of God's Word, right? Listen, if it's your habit to leave your Bible up on the shelf during the week, collecting dust, don't be surprised if you wake up one day in hell deceived by a false teacher. But not only do you need to be diligent in the study of the Scriptures, secondly, you need to be diligent, we need to be diligent in how we listen to God's Word when it's preached. Careful listening to a sermon isn't always easy. Is it? It's not supposed to always be easy. It often takes work. If a sermon is worth anything, it will require you to use your mind and to follow the arguments that are being made and how they're connected to the text. In other words, it will, it will, it will require you to think. You can't just throw your mind in the neutral and sit there daydreaming during the sermon. You have to fight against that, don't you? You can't stay up every Saturday night so late that you almost always... Fall asleep through half the message. No, properly hearing sermons, if it's biblical preaching, will cost the expenditure of mental energy. Reflecting upon what you hear, comparing it with what you already know in the light of other passages, seeking to follow the train of thought, seeking to clearly grasp what you hear and to retain it. Now, of course, we pastors, we have a responsibility here to try to make our, our sermons attention-getting and, and clear and easy to follow, as, easily, as easy to follow as we reasonably can. And as the text and the truth that's being expounded will allow, the preacher has a very important part in this. But we need to realize that when we gather together and the Word of God is opened up, it's not just the preacher who goes to work. You must go to work as well. We must imitate the Bereans in Acts 17, 11, where we read that these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether... These things were so. You see, this also means, brothers and sisters, that you must demand from those who minister the Word of God to you that they don't just get up here and tell stories, that they don't just make assertions, that they never prove from the text of Scripture in its context and support by the overall teaching of God's Word. And as I said a moment ago, this means you must be discerning. You Every single individual in this building tonight, you personally have this responsibility. You can't pass it off on someone else. It will be no excuse to say, oh, but grandma believes that so-and-so 
is a true pastor and a faithful preacher. And if grandma believes it, that's good enough for me. I'll just trust her judgment. No. Or the denominational headquarters or RBNet or whoever believes it. Or pastor so-and-so believes it. He seems to be a good man, so I'll just trust whatever he thinks. No, my dear friends. You're never to blindly trust. Never to blindly trust in the discernment of another. You must exercise discernment yourself, and you yourself will be held accountable for what you believe. And if you embrace a lie, it's you who will suffer the consequences of that lie, and not only the person who encouraged you to believe it. Now, of course, others can help you to be discerning and help you from the Scriptures to develop discernment. This is one of the reasons God has given pastors and teachers to the church. But the right and responsibility of exercising discernment belongs to every individual person. That's a Reformation doctrine, the Reformation truth. This truth is a truth that's emphasized throughout the New Testament. We might be tempted to think, well, only preachers are responsible here. I mean, this epistle, it's written to Timothy, right? And Timothy was a, a minister of the gospel. Yes, but it's written to Timothy that Timothy might help the people of God to recognize these false teachers and their errors. And it was to Christians, not just to pastors, but to individual people in the church in Colossae that Paul wrote in Colossians 2.8, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of of men. In 1 Thessalonians 5.21, again, it was to the members of the church that he writes, Test all things, hold fast to that which is good. And John writes in 1 John 4.1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Who's, com who's commanded to test the spirits, whether they are of God? Not some ecclesiastical elite, not some theological committee, and not just the pastors, but this is the responsibility of every soul, my dear friends. And then let me mention one other thing thirdly, and then eventually we'll get into the text here. We also need to realize our great dependence upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And our need, therefore, to seek His help in prayer. I know this is, this is like foundational stuff, isn't it? But we need to be reminded of these things, especially in this day in which we're living, with so many voices in our day claiming to be the voice of God. Voices coming at you over the airways, over the internet, podcasts, Twitter feeds, churches of every kind all around us, people coming to your door, literature coming in the mail. How in the world could any of us hope to ever discern between what is truth and what is error by our own innate wisdom and by our own strength alone? No. In all of our interactions with God's Word and listening to God's Word preach, we must do so with prayerful reliance upon the Holy Spirit to help us. Amen. Praying with the psalmist, Psalm 119, 18, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Verse 27, Make me understand the way of your precepts. Verse 33, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Verse 34, give me understanding and I shall keep your law. And when you come down to, near to the end of that psalm, we find him, him still praying much the same thing. Psalm 119, 169, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. 
My friend, do you ever pray like that? Do you ever pray like that? If not, you need to be praying like that. You should start praying like that. And if you do, if you pray like that, sincerely from the heart, you can trust that God by His Spirit will help you. He'll help you to grow in your knowledge and in your love of His truth, and He will protect you from false teachers. But if you think you're okay, and I'm just fine, and you neglect prayer for the Spirit's help, you're in great danger of being led astray. Well, I've already taken a good chunk of our time, and I haven't even gotten into the text. But in our time remaining, I want us to look more closely this evening concerning this whole theme, this whole idea of the danger of false teaching. I want us to look more closely at verses 6 to 7. There are some things that we're told about these false teachers in Ephesus that I think are very revealing, very helpful, very challenging, and worth our consideration. First, we have the internal source of their departure from sound teaching. Secondly, their self-interested motivation. And thirdly, their ignorant self-confidence. And may God bless this to our hearts to help us to recognize false teachers and not to become false teachers, those of us who are teachers, and to guard ourselves from straying away from the faith. So let's consider, first of all, the internal source of their departure from sound teaching. You'll notice that after Paul described the identity of these false teachers, the nature of their teaching, he also describes the effects of their teaching in verse, the end of verse 4. He said that it only promoted disputes or speculations, and it did not promote, and the translation I had, had edification, godly edification, but really, the, there's a textual variant there. It's two Greek words. There's only one difference, one Greek letter difference in those words. I think the rendering that you find in the ESV that was read to us, I think that's what he was reading from tonight, is a better rendering of the word. And it's actually a word that means administration. It can mean plan. It can mean... Um, and it's a, a genitive here. An, uh, it's the of God plan or the of God dispensation or the of God administration. It did not promote, in other words, the advancement of God's plan, God's kingdom. It promoted only disputes and speculations. And then in contrast to these false teachers and the negative effects of their teaching, Paul then underscores in verse 5 the aim and the result of a sound and gospel ministry. Verse 5, now the purpose of the commandment or the, the purpose and the goal of the charge committed to Timothy as a minister and preacher of the gospel is this, love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Well, this brings us to verse 6, and this is where we pick up now with the text. Verse 6, Paul then says, from which some, some speaks of these false teachers and probably also includes those who had followed their teaching, from which points back to a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In verse 5, from which a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith, some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. And notice what we're being told here. There are some who have turned aside to idle talk. He's talking about the teaching of these false teachers. But notice what has caused them... To do this, 
From which some, having strayed, from which what have they strayed? Leading them to turn aside to the idle talk of false teaching. They first strayed from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So here's what I want us to see. This turning aside after false teaching began when they first morally strayed in their hearts. Quoting from Heber in his commentary on 1 Timothy, it was their failure in the moral realm which led to their perversion of the gospel. And this is very important, dear friends. Listen to me closely. Men and women do not fall prey to false teaching only or primarily because of a head problem, but because of a heart problem. In 2 Thessalonians 2.12, Paul speaks of those who will be condemned, who did not believe the truth, he says, why? But had pleasure in unrighteousness. Notice, not believing the truth is not merely an intellectual problem, it's a heart problem. They did not believe the truth because they loved their sin. Look down at verse 19 of this chapter, where we see this again. Here Paul clearly ties together a defiled conscience with the danger of suffering shipwreck concerning the faith. Verse 19, having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected. And here the word translated which in the New King James is in the singular. In the Greek text is specifically pointing back to a good conscience. Having faith and a good conscience, which thing, specifically a good conscience... Some having rejected concerning the faith, the body of that which is to be believed, have suffered shipwreck. And then he mentions, for example, in verse 20, two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And when did these men suffer shipwreck concerning the faith? Well, it all started when they rejected a good conscience. There was unconfessed sin that they cherished in their hearts. Kept clinging to, refused to repent of. They had a controversy with God in some area of their lives, and they kept suppressing their conscience and stifling its admonitions and grieving the Holy Spirit. And the result was that their views of divine truth began to become dim and wavering until, as someone has put it here, like an anchorless vessel, they drifted off into error and made shipwreck. Concerning the faith. And my dear friends, sadly, this happens all the time. Happens all the time. If you've been a pastor for very many years, you've seen this. Isn't it kind of a proverbial thing that we say as pastors when a young man comes and he says, you know, I, I just don't believe such and such anymore. And you know what we're tempted to say, right? Who is she? <laughs> Who is she? Is it some relationship? God's word forbids, but you desire or you refuse to give up, and so you're ready to compromise the truth. Or it can be any number of things. One example someone referenced that I thought is so true is that this is why some young men set out for the Christian ministry. Sometimes with great enthusiasm, and they go to school, and they learn Greek, and they learn Hebrew, and they earn degrees in theology, but at some point, they veer off course. And here I'm not talking about morally 
Yet, I'm talking about doctrinally. The moral part is what causes the doctrinal part. But they veer off course at some point doctrinally, and they make shipwreck concerning the faith. Why? Because at some point, they cast off a good conscience, and they fell prey to false teaching. Perhaps there came a time when that young man began to realize, if I embrace certain biblical truths, and I commit myself to ordering the church by those truths, I'm going to have a hard time finding any church that will have me. Or I'm never going to have that, that mega church that I've always dreamed of. I'm never going to be a popular preacher. Instead, I may be ostracized and limited to a small sphere. And the Holy Spirit began to deal with that man and to say, Look, are you willing to die to human applause? Are you willing to die to carnal ambition and to the praise of men and to buy the truth and to sell it not? Whatever the cost. And there began to be a conflict of conscience. Will it be the praise of men or the praise of God? And he stifled his conscience and began to come up with all kinds of plausible excuses and arguments to take the easy way. And before too long, he fell prey to false teachers and was swept away by serious errors, if not damning heresies. Or it may be a secret, unmortified lust for money or for recognition in academic circles. Or it may be some vile, immoral habit or secret practice that he indulges himself in and is unwilling to break away from. And so here is this man with all of his Greek and Hebrew and all of his Bible training and all of his theological training, deceived by false teaching. And yet here's a simple housewife Never studied the original languages, never went to seminary, but she knows God and she knows the truth of God and she can explain and she can defend it from error with deep conviction. Why? Because she has walked before God with an ungrieved Holy Spirit, keeping her conscience washed in the blood of Christ by quick confession and ongoing repentance from sin. And she's willing by God's grace to follow the truth wherever it leads her, whatever the cost. Consider these things, my dear friends. Consider these things. If you start playing games with your conscience and grieving the Holy Spirit by holding on, clinging to that cherished sin of yours, whatever it is, you're setting yourself up to be led astray by false teaching. Your heart will grow increasingly hard your love will begin to grow cold. Your delight in the truth will begin to fade. Preaching will become boring, an old hat to you. And slowly you'll begin to open yourself up to new ideas that allow you to justify yourself in your direction of life that you're taking or in your sin. Novel perspectives and false doctrines. And unless you're brought to repentance, the end will be very ugly. Ultimately, the end will be destruction. So with respect to these false teachers, we have the internal source of their departure from sound doctrine. But then notice, secondly, Paul points to their self-interested, self-interested motivation. With respect to these false teachers he's describing here, what was the real driving motivation of their hearts? Verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law. They wanted to shine, as Hendrickson put it. 
They wanted to be known, to be looked up to as teachers of the law. Now, this word desiring indicates that this was their continuing and not yet entirely fulfilled wish and desire. The present tense of the verb probably indicates the continuous nature of this desire. It was their pressing ambition, their longing to be looked up to as teachers of the law. This is what was driving them and motivating them. And one of the characteristics of a false teacher is that the real dominating motive of his heart and of his teaching and ministry is some secret form of self-interest. And it can be a number of things. Maybe greed. It could be covetousness and greed. Paul indicates later that this also may have been at least one of the motives of these false teachers, for he describes them in 1 Timothy 6, 5, as men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Sounds a lot like so-called Christian broadcasting on TV, doesn't it? The stereotypical TV evangelist supposing that godliness is a means of material gain. Send me your money and you'll be healed of all your diseases. Join up with us, follow us, and God will shower you with material blessings. Or it may not be so crass as that. If you forgive me, I, I, would, I don't want to pop anybody's bubble with some of the Christian movies that are out there that we're glad they're at least moral, but it may be like facing the giants. You'll get a new truck. Your wife will finally become pregnant and you'll win the state championship. Isn't that the way the isn't that really the message that comes through? Peter, speaking of certain false teachers. In 2 Peter 2.3 says that by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. They use people. They pursue success in their ministry as a way to attain material and physical blessings and benefits, to make money, to acquire things. Some false teachers are secretly driven by a lust for power, for the praise of men. They love for people to admire them to admire their great wisdom, to praise their wonderful gifts, to seek their counsel, to hang on their every word and follow them as their leaders. It strokes their pride. And, and this is what is really driving them. Like Diotrephes. In 3 John 9, they love to have the preeminence. Or the false teacher may be a truly religious man. In some ways, a sincerely religious man. who is seeking to assure himself of God's favor because he himself is a stranger in his soul to the gospel, the gospel way of being right with God. And therefore, his involvement in, in teaching or preaching or in the ministry makes him feel religious. It makes him feel good about himself. It gives him a feeling of false security about his soul and a feeling of self-worth. But that's as far as it really goes. And no doubt there may be other motivations that drive a false teacher. But the bottom line is, like these false teachers in our text, the false teacher is driven by a dominating self-interest. They come to you in sheep's clothing, Jesus says. But inwardly, they are ravening wolves. And Jesus also tells us that if we're careful and prayerful and watchful, you will know them by their fruits. You will know them when the manner of their secret lives is exposed, perhaps, or by the fallacious nature of what they teach. And it's not always what they say. 
Very often it's what they leave out in their teaching. And that could be a sermon in itself, couldn't it? So we have the internal source of their departure from the faith, their self-interested motivation. And then thirdly, Paul draws attention to their self-confident ignorance. Look again at verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. And that word translated affirm is a strong word. It means to state with confidence, to speak confident, we, uh, confidently. I, I, we might translate it. In fact, I think maybe the ESV translated, translates it this way. The things which they insist on so confidently. There are really two ideas here. First, they don't understand what they say. The thing said. They fail to be careful. They, they fail to consider well the unending flow of verbiage that keeps coming from their mouths. They just run off at the mouth carelessly, as we sometimes say, without even really knowing what they're saying. And then secondly, they don't understand the matters about which they make such confident assertions. Now, Paul's not criticizing confident speech in and of itself. There's a proper boldness and a proper confidence that's actually a mark of spirit-filled preaching. A certainty of faith in the truth of God's Word and in the truth of the gospel that Paul actually commends in other places. For example, this is the same word Paul uses in Titus 3.8 when he exhorts Titus to affirm certain things in his preaching. But the problem here with these false teachers is they lack the necessary qualifications to be teachers in the church. They had no real understanding of the things that they spoke about with such cocksureness. Uh, we might, in fact, describe the problem in this way. They were arrogantly ignorant. Arrogantly ignorant. Now, that's the worst kind of ignorance. I mean, ignorance is not good in any way, but to be arrogantly ignorant. It's not good to be ignorant at all, but it's much worse to be arrogantly ignorant. To be ignorant, but to think you know it all. Perhaps you've heard of the sophomore Tendency. Do you know where the word sophomore comes from? It comes from the Greek word sophos, which means wise, and the word moros, think of a moron, which means foolish. A sophomore is a wise fool. That's the idea. You come to college your freshman year, and you come, you're kind of nervous, you know, when you come. You're starting out in college, and you, you know that you don't know anything, and you're a bit nervous and tentative and... You're teachable. Ah, but when you get a little knowledge and you become a sophomore, suddenly you think you know everything when you really don't. That's the idea. Perhaps you've heard the word sophomoric. It means conceited and overconfident of your knowledge, but poorly informed and immature. There are preachers and teachers like that. Men who speak very confidently. They've read a few books here and there. Suddenly they think they know everything. They're full of themselves. And they think now that everyone needs to listen to them. I'm going to start a podcast now so everyone can watch my podcast, right? He's ready, or he's ready to be ordained as a pastor, to presume to be a teacher in the church. And he gets angry if anyone else doesn't see it in him. Or if anyone points out his errors or, or tries to tell him that he's not ready yet. You may have heard the, the saying, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. 
the sophomoric attitude. The sophomores always know more, or so they think, than the seniors do. And the grad students do. Well, this is a good description of these false teachers. Arrogant ignorance. And this is often one of the characteristics of false teachers. They have just enough knowledge to make them dangerous. But it's not a true and mature and spiritual knowledge that produces humility. True knowledge produces humility. You remember Paul says, knowledge puffs up? But then he talks about, contrast that with humility and love. He's not saying knowledge is bad, but the kind of knowledge that puffs up is bad. True knowledge always produces humility. And it always produces love. It humbles us. But this knowledge, it's not a true, mature, spiritual knowledge that produces humility. A prayerful dependence upon God that's willing to get preparation, to be trained, to give yourself to the careful study of the Word of God, to always be aware of the fact that you are susceptible to making mistakes, that you're not the end all of all theological knowledge, and that you always have more to learn and you can learn from other people. It's a, but this spirit is not like that. It's not willing to wait. It's not willing to wait on the proper recognition of the church and its elders before, before presuming to be a teacher of God's people. And brothers and sisters, let this remind us that one of the most... The most important qualification, one of the things I've noticed over all the years that I've been a pastor, I've noticed it, I've seen it myself, but I've seen it in others too, is what often distinguishes the most splendid hypocrite from the true believer when it comes to the matter of the knowledge of doctrine and truth? You know, a man can have all of his doctrine in a row. He, he can know more than... Most people know in the world about sound doctrine, be very precise and very definite and very clear. But the two things that are often lacking, humility and love. The humility and love that softens a man's character, right? And in the way he presents the truth and the way he deals with those who perhaps are in error in a manner that is patient and kind and loving and not in an arrogant kind of know-it-all way. But here we have this, 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 this description. Humility, very, very important for someone who is a teacher of God's people. Another qualification is spiritual maturity. And another is that the man has been taught. He's been carefully and thoroughly grounded in sound doctrine. You know, Paul speaks to these things in this epistle when he gives the qualifications for an elder in chapter 3. One of the qualifications that he gives is not a novice. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Another qualification he mentions in, first, in Titus 1.9 is holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. This man has been taught. He's been educated in the truth. He's been instructed in the truth. He's been thoroughly trained in sound doctrine that he might be able, Paul says, to exhort and to convict those who contradict. So brothers and sisters, let us remember this and be careful. You know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but don't, don't make a man an elder in the church 
just because he's a nice guy. Or because he's good at speaking. And he seems to know a lot. He seems really smart. He can talk with ease. He thinks he knows things. Let them first be tested and examined. Make sure he's sufficiently mature in the faith. That he's a a humble man. That he's truly grounded in the doctrines of faith. And that he's a humble man who's not always strutting around causing disputes and divisions and talking confidently about things he actually knows very little or nothing about. Beware of arrogant ignorance. And those of you who have aspirations for the ministry and are in, in the seminary. We have several young men here this week who are preparing for the Christian ministry. Beware of this in yourself. Don't try to take shortcuts into the Christian ministry. Remember, a genuine call to be a pastor includes a call to prepare and to give yourself to those preparations, not half-heartedly, but with all of your heart and all of your soul. Well, My time is about gone, so I'm going to close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. That's always a good way to close a sermon, isn't it? (laughs) Quote from Charles Spurgeon. He put it like this. All you who think that you know and have a knowledge of the truth, may the Holy Spirit grant that we may not say a word which is not strictly verified by our experience. But I hope we can say that we have had converse with the divine Father. We have not seen Him at any time, nor have we beheld His shape. It has not been given to us like Moses to be put in the cleft of the rock and to see the back parts or the train of the invisible Jehovah, but yet we have spoken to Him. And we have said to Him, Abba, Father. We have saluted Him in that title, which came from our very heart, our Father who art in heaven. We have had access to Him in such a way that we cannot be deceived, we have found Him. And through the precious blood of Christ, we have come even to His feet. We have ordered our cause before Him, and we have filled our mouth with arguments. Nor has the speaking been all on our side, for He has been pleased to shed abroad by His Spirit His love into our hearts. While we have felt the spirit of adoption, He, on the other hand, has showed us the loving kindness of a tender father, We have felt, though no sound was ever heard, we have known, though no angelic messenger gave us witness, that His Spirit did bear witness with our spirit that we are born of God. We were embraced of Him, no more at a distance. We were brought nigh by the blood of Christ. This is the true knowledge of God, my friend. Do you know Him in this way? Yes, you've read a few theology books, and that's good. You've read the confession. You're a great defender of the confession of faith. You know a few things about Thomas Aquinas. A little little bit about divine simplicity and impassibility and aseity. The difference between ad intra and ad extra. Perhaps you know a little bit about John Calvin, a little bit about Edwards. But have you come to this great God as nothing but a wretched, hell-deserving sinner by faith alone in His Son, Jesus Christ. And have your sins been forgiven? I sometimes say this is the first question that, that we should ask young men as they are seeking the Christian ministry or before we ordain men. Do you know 
that your sins are forgiven. This is what Whitfield and these guys used to like to do when they met each other. I think it was the first thing that Whitfield said to Hal Harris when he met him. Do you know that your sins are forgiven? What about you? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Have they been forgiven? And that you've been reconciled to God and you've become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Well, may God grant that you will before this night is done. And, and you may, you may. Jesus Christ is a savior for sinners. And he is freely offered to sinners even tonight in the preaching of the gospel. And you may know him, you may have him. He is willing he is able. Come to Him as a lost sinner. Nothing but a sinner. And He will receive you. And He will have mercy upon you. And He will put His Spirit within you. And He will reveal Himself to you. In His Word, by His truth. And you'll know something of what it is to have communion with the living God through Christ, by the Spirit, and through His Word, and to know Him who is eternal life. And being truly in Christ, that's the best protection of all from being led astray by false teachers. Well, may God bless His Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you tonight for your word, the careful instruction that the Apostle by the Spirit has given to us. Grant, our Father, that we might take these things to heart and we pray that you would guard us from being led astray. We pray you would keep us from arrogance and pride, even pride of knowledge. We pray, Father, that we might grow in a true and experiential knowledge of our Savior who has loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, that the Christ would be at the center of everything in all of our thinking and all of our preaching and all of our living. Well, Father, I pray that you'd preserve our churches, that would not be said of our churches, any of them, within the lifetimes of those in this building, Lord, we pray that we would not be looking back at churches that have apostatized, from the faith, from the truth that's been handed down to us by faithful men and by our forefathers. We cry to you, our Father, please preserve us and keep us and guard us and guard our people from damning errors and being led astray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.